Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer, and then we'll open up Romans. Father, thank you for just the privilege it is to open up your, your word, to fall in love with you through your truth. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would direct our way, guide our, our thinking, help shape our, our thoughts today so that we can focus on you. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father, as your, your word um, never lets us down. And even, even uh, when we um, don't deserve it, your grace, that's what grace is. It's just always a, an abundant supply of it. And so we, we present ourselves to you, Lord. Teach us your way, Father. Help us to know you better today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brian Smith is, uh, is an elementary school counselor down in Texas. He's written a series of books, and one he wrote in 2016, just four years ago, uh, is entitled, What Were You Thinking? <laughs> and it's directed towards kind of that third, fourth grader who sometimes act before they think, and it's written to help them c- consider how their impulses and urges uh, need to maybe be kept in check a little bit. And so he, he had cleverly entitled it, What Were You Thinking? I think my mom and dad could have co-authored that book 50 years ago, um, and even today, my wife will occasionally say, Mark, what were you thinking? <laughs> have you ever thought that about God? Have you ever asked him that? What were you thinking, God? You know, like, God, what were you thinking creating cockroaches? I mean, what in the world? Or... God, what were you thinking when he only created seven days in a week? Come on. I mean, we could easily do another two. Or more seriously, God, what were you thinking allowing Satan access to the perfect Garden of Eden? Or how about this one? God, what were you thinking Choosing the Jewish people to be your special nation. What were you thinking? I think the prophets in the Old Testament would have said that very same thing. Come on, God, what were you thinking? As an example, Exodus chapter uh, 22 has God summing up Israel's sinfulness this way. Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They've devoured lives. They've taken treasure and precious things. And they've made many widows in the midst. Not only that, her priests have done violence to my law, profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they've not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. The prophets, the priests, the princes, the kings within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get honest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seen false visions and divining lies for them, and they say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. The prophets, the priests, the kings, all the people 
of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. They've wronged the poor and the needy. They've oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall, stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. And thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with my fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now, whether the Apostle Paul was thinking of this particular passage or any of the many, many other Old Testament passages that say something similar about the sinfulness of the Jewish people, when we look at Romans chapter 2, as we saw last week, um, he gives a scathing indictment against his own people, his own countrymen, the Jewish people. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2, a passage, again, we looked at a little bit last week. Romans chapter 2. And he says in verse 21, Therefore, you teach another, do you not teach yourself? And you who preach that you should not steal, do you steal? And you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? You who boast in the law, through the breaking of the law, aren't you dishonoring God? And then he quotes from both Isaiah and Ezekiel when he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then it goes on in verse 25, and he says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And circumcision was simply that outward symbol of being God's chosen people, God giving that to Abraham as a sign uh, of, of their special relationship with the one and only true God. And Paul is saying, well, what good is it if you're just transgressors of the law? Verse 26, so if the uncircumcised man, the, that pagan Gentile, they keep the requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, that, that Gentile dog, <laughs> if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? What is Paul saying here? Big deal that you're a Jew. Big deal that you got the, the sign of the covenant given by God to Abraham. The Gentiles are just as better off, or they're better off than you are. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, a real Jew, he says. It has to do with the circumcision that is in the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In that last part of chapter 2, he's saying, look, it makes no difference. It makes no difference if you wear the name Jew, if you claim that you have that special relationship with the one and only true God, Jehovah God, makes no difference that you're following the religious rites or that you're a guide to the blind, that you're a light to those in darkness, that you're, you're a corrector of the foolish, that you're a teacher of the immature, makes no difference. When it comes to eternal salvation, wear any label you want, Jew, God is not impressed. But that would immediately raise a question 
in the minds of probably some of the people he's writing to because in the church at Rome, the people that are receiving this letter were people who were Jews. They took great pride. We are the people of God. We are the covenantal community. We are the people of God. Are, are you saying, Paul, that's meaningless? It raises questions, and Paul, anticipating those questions, will answer them in a short little eight-verse uh, kind of parenthetical paragraph. That first question there is in verse 1 of chapter 3. What then is the advantage of the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Question one, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Now, you would think Paul has already answered that question, what he just wrote previously. No, of course. What, what, what did I just say? Of course there's no advantage being a Jew. That's what I just wrote you about. But notice how he answers his question starting in verse 2. Is there an advantage to the Jew? He says, great in every way, in every respect. Great in every respect. I thought you just finished saying there is no advantage. Now he says, great in every respect, much in every way. This is a shocking answer. Now, notice that Paul is speaking in the present time. What advantage has the Jew? He's talking in his current time, not in the Old Testament period, not in that time where the Jewish people were de delivered from the hand of the Pharaoh and Moses led them across to, to the promised land, through the Red Sea on dry land, the great miracles that God did, the time of, of King David and all his glory, or the wisdom of Solomon. Why, that was an advantage, advantageous time. But Paul is asking the question, what is the advantage to the Jew now? Does the Jew have advantages now? Is there, is there some value, benefit to being of the circumcision? Great in every respect, he says. First of all, he says, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, it sounds like he's about to make a list of things. First on the list, now he really doesn't. He's just saying chiefly, he'll come back to that later in his letter, but he's focusing on one thing. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, there is. In spite of what I just said in chapter 2, first of all, they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what, what is the oracles of God? It's a little difficult maybe to interpret. Some commentators take different views. It's, I think, in a broad way, it's obviously the Old Testament. God revealed himself to one group of people and one group of people only. Of all the people on the face of the earth, God conveyed his heart, revealed his character to the Jewish people. But I think Paul is saying much more than just the simple fact that the Jewish people were a depository of, of the Old Testament. It's like, you know, God gave them his truth and he said, that's all I needed you. Anybody will do. Okay, you Jews, here, boom, here's my word, now I'm done with you. No, there's more involved here when Paul says, great in every way they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. There's something in the Old Testament 
And I think he's referring to the, the prophetic utterances, many of which are yet to be fulfilled. The oracles of God. There's something that is yet to be fulfilled with the nation of Israel. And Paul's not going to reveal that yet. He's simply saying, check out the oracles of God. That'll make a believer out of you that the Jewish people are special. Now, Paul is going to come back to this in three chapters in Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he'll unpack what he has just insinuated here. And a few months down the road, we'll, we'll get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. But it raises a, a second question. Look at verse 3. Well, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify, render null and void the faithfulness of God, will it? Here's the second question. Will a, will a person's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? I mean, doesn't unbelief terminate and um, aren't all bets off in terms of God's faithfulness and grace? Let's think this through, Paul. I mean, it's the Jewish people. What did they do with the Messiah? They rejected him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Isn't that enough to say, okay, all right, that was it, enough. Forget what I said back in the Old Testament. I have had it with you people. I mean, doesn't a person's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul's answer in verse 4, may it never be. Some of your translations may say, God forbid. It's a very strong phrase. In fact, Paul will use it 10 times in the book of Romans. Perish the thought. Get it out of your thinking, Paul says. God forbid. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified. You may be vindicated in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's a very strong response by Paul. And he's saying, you see, God remains faithful to his word. He is true to his word. And no amount of sin is going to contradict or nullify that. There's no way possible, Paul is saying, that the unbelief of the Jews is going to end God's promises to them. Um, let me take you back to one of those oracles of God to get a feel for what Paul is saying. It was uh, words spoken through the prophet Jeremiah at, it, at one of the low times of uh, the people of Israel's existence. They had repudiated God. They had um, turned their back on his truth, and now God was bringing the judgment of the Babylonians God's judgment was about to fall on ancient Israel. And yet, in spite of that, God comes and he makes these promises. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law 
within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. And thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, who the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. If the sun stops shining and the moon and stars stop shining, then Israel will stop being my special people. In other words, it ain't going to happen. He goes on. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. His point is, God says it, he meant it, he's faithful, he's true. Let God be found true even though every man is a liar. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God's word is vindicated and he prevails even when he's questioned. In spite of Israel's unbelief, God remains faithful to the people of Israel. Now that raises a third question there in verse uh, 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Now I'm speaking in human terms. And so here's this third question. Since man's sin magnifies God's righteousness, well, how can he still inflict his wrath on us? Um... Shouldn't God, instead of inflicting wrath, shouldn't he, shouldn't he be pleased that, okay, all right, so we're sinners. But our sin is actually magnifying how righteous he is. I mean, he's righteous. And, and when people see the enormity of his grace and mercy to us, I mean, certainly he should show some gratitude and not inflict his wrath upon us, upon us. Isn't God glorified because man sins? And if he judges us for glorifying him, isn't that a bit unfair? Now he answers it there in verse 6. Once again, very strongly, God forbid, may it never be. Perish the thought. For otherwise... How will God judge the world? What Paul is saying here is, of course God judges sin. That's God. That's part of his character. He's going to judge the world. If he's going to judge the world, you're part of the world, you're going to get judged, O Israel, O Jewish people. Judging is a basic function of a holy God. It's part of his character. Yes, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, but he's just and he's righteous. He's holy. He's going to be true to his word, which means 
he will also be true when he says he's going to judge the world. God does not turn his back on sin. Hmm. There's a, there's a dilemma forming here, is there not? The faithfulness and truthfulness of God, but judgment and righteousness? There's a fourth question, kind of a bizarre question, but it's a question. If my sin enhances God's glory, then why would I still be judged? In fact, why not sin more? And good can come from it. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come. So, look, if my sin enhances God's glory, why should I be judged? Very similar to what he said in question three, except question three is a focus on God. This is a focus on me. I mean, why not sin more then so good will come from it? I mean, that's like, <clears throat> that's like the arsonist who just gets arrested for starting a, a fire um, and he's standing there in handcuffs. He said, hey, now wait a minute. <clears throat> Let's talk about this. Look, the first responders, um, they were marvelous. I mean, as soon as the alarm was called in, within two minutes, they're there. I mean, they're rescuing people, right? Look, if I hadn't started that fire, you would have never known how skilled, how qualified uh, your first responders were. Come on, take these things off me. Surely that means something. Or it's like the computer hacker who hacked into your financial institution, and he's caught, um, but he says, hey, hey, no, wait a minute, let's just, just cool heads here will prevail, right? I mean, look, if I hadn't done that, you would have never known the, how inappropriate your security system was. I mean, by me doing what I did, it kind of reveals um, some, some gaps here. And you're, you're, look, um, you ought to thank me. Why am I being judged? In fact, you ought to release me so I can do more of this so we can find out more of the security issues that are going around this country. Preposterous, right? Apostle Paul in the last part of verse 8 just handles it with four words. Their condemnation is just. It's hardly worth answering. Short and sweet, their condemnation is just. I do want you to notice again, though, that little parenthetical phrase in verse 8 when he says, you know, why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let us send more, the good can come. What was it that Paul was saying that could be misconstrued, that he could be slandered over, that he could... Some people could actually say, Paul is encouraging sin so that grace can abound. Paul will actually deal with that in the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, verse 1 again. What was it that Paul was saying that could be misunderstood? The message of grace. Grace can so easily be misunderstood, can it not? You're inviting people to do What? Faith and faith alone gets you to heaven? Purely on the basis of God's good favor, on his grace? Oh, come on. 
That's too easy. Why? That's easy believism. Don't you know that? In fact, there's a name we call it, cheap grace. And I think Paul would say, and I would agree, yeah, believism is very easy. A child, like faith, is all that's needed. It's very easy to hear the good news. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes, it's simply transferring one's trust off oneself, believing the good news that Jesus died and rose again. That is very easy. But people are twisting it. Paul, that's cheap grace. I think Paul would respond, cheap grace? Grace is free. It's not only cheap, it's free. It's a good news. It's just interesting that the message of grace and even the Apostle Paul had to deal with the, how it was misconstrued. Well, after handling these objections, these questions that are raised, Paul is ready to close his arguments as we continue in chapter 3, and we'll look at that next week. But he, he wraps it up in verse 9 by simply saying, What then? Are we better than they? No, nope, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, all mankind, are all under sin. And he'll go on and develop that in those final verses. Um, now, let, let me kind of wrap this up. Th th these little eight verses were a bit of a, an aside comment, a parenthetical statement, a little uh, excursus from his main argument. Because when he raised that question in chapter 2 about um, being a Jew makes no difference, Raising the question in the minds, well, then, is there an advantage? And I thought you just said no, but he has to clarify it. So these eight verses have been attempt to clarify what God means. You see, the confusion comes down over the character of God. There's confusion, and there's probably no uh, more confusing people to raise the confusion about the character of God than the Jewish people. The confusion is, well, but God is faithful and he's true to his word. He's made promises. But, but God is also righteous, and he's, he's just. There's judgment. He's the judge of the world. I mean, how, how, how do these work? I mean, of all the people on the face of the earth, God chose Israel through whom he conveyed his message. It was the Jewish people that the law came, that the revelation of, of the character of God. It was through the Jews that God says, I'm going to bless all the world. It was through the Jews that God says, I'm going to send my Savior to the world. It was through the Jewish people, and will be, that he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. And that Messiah, Jesus, is going to sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, that's right, over there in the Middle East. That's what the prophets told. God, what were you thinking? The Jewish people? You've got to be kidding me. Let's not forget what Ezekiel had said. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall, stand in the gap before me for the land so that I wouldn't destroy it. I found no one. 
And thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath and their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Yep, that's what God needs to do to the Jewish people. And yet, almost side by side to those kind of verses, we'll see verses like what's in Isaiah, the book we studied last couple years. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 43. God says, I am the Lord, your creator, O Jacob. I'm the one who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by my name. You are mine. Or well, he says over in, in chapter 49, uh, similar words of promise. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God says, can a, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. I will not forget you. God is true to his promises. True to his promises. By way of application, I think from these short little eight-verse um, parenthetical statement, I think in chapter 3, verse 3, this question, if God's faithfulness, is God's faithfulness going to be somehow nullified by the, by the sinfulness of the people? And Paul's answer is, the character of God guarantees eternal promises. That's takeaway number one. The character of God guarantees his eternal promises. The character of God, his faithfulness, his truthfulness. Verse 3, his faithfulness. Verse 4, his truthfulness. Let God be found true, and even though every man is a liar, God is true, and he's faithful to his promises. There is certainty in his eternal promises for Israel, for us. But God is also righteous and just. And he will deal with sin. And so Romans 3, 5, and, and verse 6, God is the judge of the world, and he will indeed inflict wrath against sin because he is also righteous, he's holy, he's just. God's character also guarantees his coming judgment. The certainty of his coming judgment is grounded in his character. He is holy and righteous and just. Now, Paul leaves it there, <clears throat> but if, if you're thinking a little bit this morning, there is a sense of angst here. Uh, it's... it's part of the divine dilemma. God makes promises, and he's faithful and true to his word because those were unconditional promises. And he's going to fulfill those promises. I am God, I am not man, he says. Every man can be a liar, but I am true. God is going to fulfill his promises to the Jews. But at what cost? Isn't his character 
somehow maligned his righteousness and his judgment? He's the judge of the world. The divine dilemma. How in the world can God maintain his faithfulness and his truthfulness while maintaining his righteousness and his judgment? And yet, in these eight verses, there they are. The answer will be in two or three weeks in Romans chapter 3. More than 300 years ago, King Louis XIV was having a discussion with the famed mathematician and um, philosopher Blaise Pascal over the existence of God. He asks Pascal, what is the evidence for God? What is the evidence for God? And Blaise Pascal said, your majesty, in a word, Jew, the Jew. God's faithful dealings with the Jews down throughout history proves not only that he exists, it proves that he is a God who is faithful, he is true, he is righteous, and he's just. When God promises something, it will come to pass. And in some way and in some form or fashion, in God's plan, the faithfulness of God and his truthfulness to his promises and his character of righteous and holy and justness will all merge together. But I want to focus on something else for us. See, we can leave here today with, I think, great encouragement, knowing that when God has promised us something, he will bring it to pass because he's faithful and true to his word. When he promises us eternal life as a free gift, he means it. Randy called me. This was a number of years ago. He, um, he called me up and says, uh, Pastor, can I meet with you? I, I need to talk with you about some things. There was clearly some concern in his voice, so I said, sure. We got together. And he shared with me the, the sickening news that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, probably less than six months to live. Randy had not lived um, a stellar life. Um, he had not given God a whole lot of time. He'd lived pretty much for himself in his short life. He was only in his 40s. Um, and now he's faced with meeting the God that he had spurned. Is there any hope for me? That's what he wanted to know. And of course, I had the privilege of being able to tell him about a faithful and true and just God who sent his son Jesus into the world to take all his sin, to take everything that he was worrying about, all the sin that he had committed, all the sin that he was going to commit in the final months of his life. And he put that on Jesus Christ, his son. And Jesus died in his place and took the judgment of God for him. And I was able to look Randy in the eye and say, God is promising you a free gift to heaven. The free gift of eternal life. 
And all you have to do to have the assurance that you're going to get it is to put your trust in Jesus and him alone. Because God said, I love this world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. That's a promise of God. And God will be found true, and every man will be a found a liar. Every man who would look at Randy and say, you got to be kidding me. That's cheap. Of all the things you did, well, you, you got to be saying a bunch of somethings, you know. Something, you know, you got to be doing something to pay penance for the sins of your life. No, God offered Randy a promise. And Randy took that promise, and right there in his room while he was sitting in that big easy chair, he trusted Jesus as his Savior. And I have no doubt that when I get to heaven, I'll talk with Randy. I have no doubt, not because of Randy, but because of him who promised. Our eternal salvation, folks, doesn't rest on how we're performing yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Aren't you glad? That I know that I can go to heaven is not based on how I'm performing today or how I might perform tomorrow because, quite frankly, I don't know how I'm going to perform tomorrow, and neither do you. You have no idea how you're going to be living five years from now. And on the authority of God's Word, I'm so glad to tell you your assurance of going to heaven isn't based on your performance or your future performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus Christ who perfectly took your sin, paid for it on the cross, rose again, triumphant. And that's our hope. Our hope rests in a God who spoke a promise, and he's faithful and he's true. And he's righteous and he's just. Oh, he dealt with our sin, as we'll find in Romans chapter 3 in a couple weeks. He dealt with it through his son, Jesus. No, it's the word of God, the promises of God that we rest in. And so when those doubts come, when the tempter may say, you don't deserve God's grace, you can fully agree that's why it's grace. I don't. But God made a promise. He doesn't renege on his word. He's true. And so let me close today with a reminder of the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God. Psalm chapter 36, verse 5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 89, verse 8, The Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word, it's settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. He's faithful to his word. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete 
without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. He is faithful. And so for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. This is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. You see, God is just. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will stand before there. But, see that last one? If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God doesn't lie. And so, like the writer of Hebrews said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He's faithful to his word. Aren't you glad we can leave here today having worshiped him and sung to him and, and heard from his word and been reminded of his trustworthiness, of his faithfulness, of his righteousness, of his justice. And it's all centered around one person, not you, not me, Jesus. And I could go to heaven on that. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself as you have in your word. And thank you so much, Father, that we can know you, we can enter into a relationship with you, and we can live our life based on who you are, based on what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for um, giving us the free gift of eternal life, all because of what your Son has done. Thank you that you're true to your word. You are faithful even when we're not. And so, Father, help us to live for you. Help, help us to be motivated by that grace. Help us to, to live our life this week with this reminder, my goodness, God, you are so faithful. Thank you for being a truthful God. Help us to rest upon you, your sure promises, Lord, all because of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.